Psalm 119, verses 169 to 176. 169. Here we will read of the grace of God, grace for godliness. 169. Let my cry come before you, O Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. Let my supplication come before you. Deliver me according to your word. Let my lips utter praise, for you teach me your statutes. Let my tongue sing of your word, for all your commandments are righteous. Let your hand be ready to help me, for I have chosen your precepts. I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. Let my soul live that it may praise you, and let your ordinances help me. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that your grace is abundant, and especially we have experienced it. We have experienced it because you have saved us from our sins. We pray, Father, that this time, at this moment, as we study this passage, you will show us your sanctifying grace and our need to pursue that, our need to ask you for this grace to sustain us and enable us day by day until we meet you face to face. Grant us this insight from this passage. In the name of Christ, amen. Well, why is it that we will say that there is sanctifying grace in this passage? Why is it that we say there is sanctifying grace in this passage? Notice with me, in most of these verses, in six out of eight of these verses, there is a small word that implies that David, the prophet and the man of God, is pleading with God for the grace of God. It is the first word of several of these verses. Verse 169, he says, Let my cry come before you. He says, let. He's praying to the Lord, and he's asking the Lord to let something happen. And if the Lord is going to let something happen, the implication is it has to come from his goodness. It has to come from his grace. It has to come from his love and mercy. Verse 170, let my supplication come before you. 171, let my lips utter praise. 172, let my tongue sing of your word. 173, let your hand be ready to help me. Verse 175, let my soul live that it may praise you. Here it's quite evident that David is pleading with the Lord. He's beseeching the Lord for the grace of God, the goodness of God, to be poured out into his life so that he is enabled to act in these ways. He will not be able to act in these ways unless the grace of God is endued upon him or endowed upon him. It will not happen unless he receives it from heaven. This is consistent with James 1.17. Every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. It's also consistent with 1 Corinthians 4, 7. What do you have that you did not receive? What do you have that you did not receive? David understands this, and he praises God for it. 
He's praying about this in the right and good and godly way. This we call sanctifying grace. This grace is that grace that we need as believers in Christ to live according to the will of Christ, to live according to the commandments of Christ, to the law of Christ. This is what we need day by day. Now, the Bible describes three main kinds of grace. Three kinds of grace. And the amazing thing is that there are people who absolutely despise all three kinds of grace. It's amazing. It's stunning that people, in one form or another, they deny and despise these forms of grace. You would think that if we're talking about grace, people would love it. People would reach out for it. People would say, I want it. I want every part of it, and I want it in my life 100%. Yet they do not. The first form of grace the Bible explains is known as common grace. Common grace. Common grace, or we may use other words besides grace, like love, goodness, mercy, what we will say common grace, as is typically uh, that is known. Common grace is that what, which God does for everybody. Jesus spoke of this in Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5, verse 45, when he says, in order that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he causes his Son, that is, the Son and the sunlight, to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. God sends rain and sends the sunshine on righteous people and unrighteous people, on good people and on evil people. That is a part of his common grace. He endows people with that privilege. Another aspect of common grace is that internal ability or the innate ability, that which is natural to us. Some people are skilled and gifted in one area above another area. Some people are, are good at farming. Some people are good at math and so on and so forth. There are different skills, but how did those skills come about? Who gave those skills? Isaiah explains. Isaiah 28, 23. 28, 23 to 29. He says, Give ear and hear my voice. Listen and hear my words. Does the farmer plow continually to plant seed? Does he continually turn and harrow the ground? Does he not level its surface and sow dill and scatter cumin and plant wheat and rose? and barley in its place, and rye within its area. For his God instructs and teaches him properly. For dill is not threshed with a threshing sledge, nor is the cartwheel driven over cumin, but dill is beaten out with a rod, and cumin with a club. Grain for bread is crushed. Indeed, he does not continue to thresh it forever, because the wheel of his cart and his horses eventually damage it. He does not thresh it longer. This also comes from the Lord of hosts, who has made his counsel wonderful and his wisdom great. These innate and natural abilities to understand how things are done are gifts of God. These are all from common grace. Now, how is it that people despise this and deny this? There are all kinds of people, all kinds of people who will say, there is no God. Or I don't know if God exists. Or it's not your God, it's not the Christian God, it's some other God who has done thus and so. 
thereby they deny common grace. They deny the fact that this is coming from the true and living God, the God of the Bible, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who gives these gifts to man, both the physical and also the skillful. All of these gifts are given by the God of heaven, the true and living God. We ought not to despise his common grace, but acknowledge it and praise him for it, as Psalm 135 did. The next kind of grace is effectual grace. Effectual, special, effective grace. This grace is that God's particular grace that he gives to his elect, that he gives to his chosen ones. From the foundation of the world, God has chosen those who will be saved in Christ. We learn this from Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, God's effective, special grace. Ephesians 1 verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. Ephesians 1, 3-6. Here the Apostle Paul explains this special effective grace that God grants to his chosen ones. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. This happened by his love and by his grace, according to verses 4 and 6. This is the special grace. People despise this too. Who despises this? Those who support prevenient grace also called general grace, grace that comes to every individual, every person among all who have lived from the beginning of the world until the end of the world, they promote and teach a general or prevenient grace, a grace that is given equally to every person. And it is up to them to choose and to act upon that grace in order to be saved from their sins. And when they hear of effective grace, special grace, prevenient grace, they absolutely despise and deny it. They walk away from it, and it becomes something that is bitter to their taste. They want nothing to do with it whatsoever. However, the Bible teaches it. The Bible teaches that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, and we needed God's grace to open our eyes, to make a dead person a live person. The Bible teaches that this is the way that we are saved from our sins. The gift of God's grace to us enables us to see, to hear, to have a heart to believe and repent of our sins. Then the third kind, which is from our passage today. From Psalm 119, this third kind of grace is sanctifying grace. It's grace that makes us holy. It's also the grace that was in Romans chapter 6. The whole chapter is devoted to explain the fact that God's grace toward his people, towards his saved ones, towards his elect, towards the believers, his disciples, that grace is that which is in their life and will remain in their life and continue in their life to empower them 
to live righteously, sanctifying grace. Now, this sanctifying grace is absolutely abhorred. This sanctifying grace is absolutely denied. People will absolutely detest hearing about this sanctifying grace. You would think that it would make them happy. It would make them excited that there is a way, there is an ability to live according to the will of God and not be under the wrath of God, not experience eternal punishment, not continue to wallow in the depravity of our human sin and the consequences of our sin, to be released from guilt, to have a clear and clean conscience before God. You would think that people would want this sanctifying grace that is able to overcome all sin and all deadness of the human heart. And yet, there are many people, even those who go to Christian churches, who want nothing to do with sanctifying grace. They want nothing to do with any call to godliness, any call to holiness, any call to righteousness, any call to obedience and maturity and growth in the Christian life. They don't want to come to church to hear that whatsoever. They want to come to church and just be flattered with cheap grace. They want to be flattered with an easy faith, an easy believism, an easy way to get to heaven. They don't understand that Jesus actually taught to strive by the narrow gate, enter by the small gate, Enter by the straight path. Jesus taught this. This straight path is the highway of holiness, as Isaiah calls it. It is the highway of holiness. It is the sanctifying grace that conforms us to live according to the will of God and not according to our own ideas, not according to our own lusts, not according to our own wisdom, not according to our own mind, whatever we want to do, but whatever God wants us to do. That's what we should pursue, and that's the sanctifying grace that is available in abundance for all of us who are saved. All of us who know Jesus Christ in truth as Lord and Savior, this is available to us. This is what David had. This is what David experienced. This is what David wanted more and more of day by day. Let's have this be true of us. Verse 169. Verse 169, he says, Let my cry come before you, O Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. David doesn't casually pray to God here. He has this ardent and fervent prayer to God, which he calls a cry. He cries out to God for God's mercy, for God's grace to come upon him. He goes to the source, the only source. He goes before the Lord. The Lord is the true God, the true and living God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the only way to know Him is through Jesus Christ. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. John 17, 3. He goes to this God, the God who has this ability to answer His fervent and ardent prayers to God. He has this desire that does not come naturally. His cry does not come naturally. Notice it is God's grace that changed him, and that grace that's still in him is grace that is used by the new man, the new heart, the new creation, to cry out to God for more. 
That grace that saved him from his sins, the effect of grace, is also grace that is awakening him and enabling him and making him cry out to God with great zeal and desire to have God answer his prayer. And the prayer is, give me understanding according to your word. There are many things we seek to understand. There are many things we seek to pursue. We seek to be the best and the brightest of everything we do. And yet we don't do so in consultation with the word of God. We do not pray and lift up a prayer to God and say, Lord, help me direct my paths. Help me to walk in the straight paths of righteousness. Help me to run on the highway of holiness. We don't ask God. And here David, however, he does. He says, give me understanding according to your word. He prays to the Lord to have the insight he needs, to have the understanding he needs to do that which his word teaches. It's often the problem that we have that we consult other sources. We consult books. We consult articles. We consult people who are saying this or that, publishing this or that. It's very readily available to us these days on the internet. We do all of this without asking ourselves, is what I'm learning about science, is what I'm learning about uh, history and archaeology and biology and whatever I'm learning about the, the nature of man, anthropology and sociology and ethics and morality, are all these things that I'm learning that are being told to me by my parents, by my teachers, by the professors, by the internet, by social media, however it's being bombarded upon us, do we ask, is this understanding consistent with the word of God? The Bible says in Isaiah 8.20, to the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They have no light. If whatever we read about anthropology and science and anything else is contrary to the Bible, and what the Bible says about it, then there is no light. We ought to reject and jettison whatever we receive in such manner, from such sources. As well, verse 170. He says, let my supplication come before you. Deliver me according to your word. Now he calls his prayer uh, supplication. This is a, a more... Uh, a more sincere or a more uh, zealous way to describe his prayer, he supplicates and desires for God to hear the prayer. In verse, verses 169 and 170, he's asking, Lord, let these prayers come up before you. These are sincere prayers. They're honest prayers. May they reach you. He's using a metaphor. He's using a figure of speech. Of course, God doesn't need to hear anything, and it doesn't have to go from the earth into heaven in any spatial sense. But he's speaking metaphorically and spiritually, Lord, may it come right into your presence. May it be something that's front and center to you so that you answer me and you do according to what I'm asking. Because, after all, it is according to your word. And in this case, in verse 170, deliver me according to your word. 
We live in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, an evil and adulterous generation. We live in the midst of people who do not care about the things of God. The world and the flesh and the devil, they are always militating against us. They're always fighting against us. They're looking at every turn, at every corner, every second, every moment to trip us up, to entrap us, and to bring us down into destruction. David understands this, and this is why he pleads with God for his grace and David's need to be front and center so that it is applied in David's life to deliver him from the troubles and the afflictions and the temptations that he faces day by day. No temptation has overtaken you but such as is common to man. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. We all need deliverance. 1 Corinthians 10.13 explained that these temptations are common to man. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape. So pray. Plead with him to help us to overcome. Verse 171. Let my lips utter praise, for you teach me your statutes. Let my lips utter praise. Our lips, our lips are full of lethal poison. Our lips are full of everything that is deadly, everything that is fatal, everything that can destroy. Our lips need to be transformed. And David knows this. David knows that what's on his lips is often that which is contrary to the will of God, contrary to the wisdom of God, contrary to the love of God and the mercy of God, contrary to everything that God desires. This is why he says, let my lips, in contrast, let my lips utter praise. Let my lips be devoted and dedicated to praising you. Let my lips be that which honor you and glorify you, that exalt your name, that praise you for who you are and what you have done in my life. May my lips repeat your many, many marvelous and miraculous deeds in my life. May my lips tell other people about who you are. Let my lips utter the praise of the glorious uh, and uh, glorious nature of your kingdom, of the glorious work of Christ on the cross and his resurrection and how that can and does transform the sinner's life. But also, he says, for you teach me your statutes. In this case, he is saying, I want to utter praise because I know you teach me your statutes. When I read the Bible, he's saying, I'm not going to understand it based on my natural abilities. I'm not going to be able to understand it unless you teach me. You make me understand. You show me by the careful meditation, careful memorization, careful contemplation of this word, then I will be taught by you. I will not be taught by you in a vacuum. I will not be taught by you by, by consulting books, man-made books, I will be taught by you when you teach me directly from the Bible. Verse 172. 
Let my tongue sing of your word, for all your commandments are righteous. Now he wants his tongue. Also, using a metaphor, talking about the mouth and how it's used. Let my tongue sing of your word. Our tongues are like the, the, the tongues of serpents. Our tongues are those that have poison and ready to attack. Often that's what our tongues are for. But here he wants to be able to sing of the word of God. He wants to sing about what the Bible says. He wants to rejoice in the things of God. He wants to sing in a way that glorifies the Word of God because the Word of God tells us about God. He also understands in verse 172 that all the commandments of God are righteous. They all are. He doesn't mean some. He doesn't mean most. He means they all are. All of the commandments of God are righteous. The greatest commandment to love God with all our heart. The second greatest commandment to love our neighbor as ourself. The Ten Commandments to not have any other gods before the Lord. To not worship an idol. Not to take the name of the Lord in vain. To remember the Sabbath day. To keep it holy. To honor father and mother. Not to murder. Not to commit adultery. Not to steal. Not to bear false witness and not to covet. These are God's commandments. He says all these commandments and the implications, he means, all of these commandments and the implications of these commandments are righteous. I say implications because physical murder, the actual taking of an innocent human life, somebody who did not deserve to die and murdering that person, that is what is meant in the Ten Commandments, but also the hateful and spiteful thoughts, the hateful thoughts we have towards somebody unjustly is also murder, according to 1 John chapter 3. So that's what I mean by all the commandments of God and the implications of those commandments are righteousness. This is a completely contrary attitude from the old man and from unbelievers. Our flesh and we are fighting day by day. We have the new man and the old man fighting against each other. Our flesh and the natural man, the unbelievers, they don't want to sing of the Word of God. There's nothing good in the Word of God for them. And they don't consider all the commandments of God righteousness. No. They might say, well, there's something righteous here or there, and they like to pick and choose. They like to go to the, to the farm and, and go to the cherry tree and, and pick and choose however they would like what is righteous and what's not righteous. This is what the flesh does. This, this is what unbelievers do, but not believers. When they come to the commandments of God, whether they understand it at the moment or not, they consider those commandments righteous and they try to grapple with and grasp with their minds what is said in the Bible so that they understand the Lord correctly and they understand themselves correctly in relationship to the Lord. Verse 173. Let your hand be ready to help me, for I have chosen your precepts. Let your hand be ready to help me. The hand of God in Scripture is a metaphor for the power of God, the mighty, almighty power of God. He pleads with the Lord for the Lord to grant an ounce of his 
marvelous and immense power to be granted in his life. To be granted in his life so that this powerful grace helps him to walk in the ways of God. He knows that he needs the powerful grace of God to help him in his life. There is a phrase that was read earlier in Romans chapter 6 that refers to this statement. It's in Romans chapter 6 and verse 4. Romans 6, 4. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. The apostle says that Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father. What does he mean by the glory of the Father? He means the glorious power of the Father. The glorious power of the Father was that which raised Jesus up from the dead on the third day. This is the kind of power that God has that is there and ready to help us, to assist us, to overcome whatever we are experiencing. Whatever the afflictions, whatever the anxieties, whatever the temptations that we face, the power of God is there and available. Jesus said, and lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. Matthew 28, 20. And the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 3, 20. Now to him who is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Ephesians three twenty to 21. The power of God was not only available to David and not only available to Christ, but also available to us to help us in the ways of God. And why? Why is it that God should enable us? Why is it that God should empower us? According to verse 173, for I have chosen your precepts. Because I have already determined, I have chosen to follow your ways. I know that I am not my own master. Our only master and Lord is Jesus Christ. I know this. I have chosen your ways. Therefore, because I have chosen your ways, enable me to walk in your ways. Give me the help I need because I have determined, I have chosen your precepts. How can God and how would God deny this kind of prayer? When we ask this kind of prayer in faith, we plead with God like this in faith. I have chosen your ways, therefore help me. I am not choosing the ways of the devil. I'm not choosing the ways of the world and the flesh. I am choosing your ways. Because I'm choosing your ways, enable me to walk in your ways. Let your hand be ready to help me. 174. I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. His longing. David's longing is for the salvation of God. He has experienced it. He has a deposit. He has this earnest money already given. That is, he is justified by faith in Christ. He has the Holy Spirit dwelling within him. His eyes have been opened to a new creation, a new way, a new world, the world to come. Yet, he has not experienced it in the full. 
100%. We still live in this world. We still live in a world of crying and pain, torture, torment, suffering, death. We live in this evil world still. But what sustains him? What is that which prods him along? His longing for the salvation of God. He longs for the salvation of God. He longs to be in the presence of God fully when there will no longer be any pain, any torture, any death, no such problems whatsoever. There will be a complete release, a complete deliverance from those afflictions. Revelation chapter 21, verse 4. Revelation 21.4, And he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall no longer be any death. There shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. He wants day by day more and more comprehension, more and more basking in this salvation that is yet to come. He wants to be completely delivered from the evils of this world so that he may experience the presence of God forever and ever. He longs for it, the salvation of the Lord. He doesn't long for the things of the world. He longs for the things of God. And he shows this longing by delighting in the law of God. People will say, no, no, I don't long for the world. I don't long for the things of the world. I don't do that. No, no. In fact, I I long for God. I want to be with God. I want everything God has for me. I want whatever He has to offer to me. And yet, their life is not characterized by delighting in the law of God. It's not characterized by meditation and memorization of the Word of God. They don't delight in the laws of God. Whatever is in the law of God It is something that's very distasteful to them. It's like eating a bitter herb instead of sweet honey whenever they read and study and hear the Word of God. They say, it's too difficult for me. That's too hard. I don't want that. And they walk away from it. Yet here he says, he longs for God's salvation and he delights in the law of God. This is a new man. This is a transformed man. This is a man saved from his sins and knows that his hand is in the hand of God and he wants his um, life in the hand of God to be fully experienced with all that God has for him in this life and in the life to come. Verse 175 Let my soul live that it may praise you and let, let your ordinances help me. Let my soul live that it may praise you, and let your ordinances help me. He knows that he needs life in his soul. He has life. He's asking for more life. He has been revived, but he wants more revival. He wants his soul to live, and he wants his life to live that it may praise God. He, he will praise God with his life if his lips are in conformity to the word of God. His life will praise God if his life, his living, day-by-day living, his walking in the faith, 
is in conformity with the word of God. And then they will praise God. Let my soul live that it may praise you. In other words, he knows he cannot be a hypocrite. He cannot be one who says whatever he wants with his mouth, but then his life doesn't match up to it. Because if his life does not match up to it, then he is defaming the name of the Lord and he's not praising God. He is taking the name of the Lord in vain. He says whatever he wants with his mouth, but his life contradicts it. Therefore, his life does not praise God. Jesus said, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Glorify your Father who is in heaven. Matthew 5, 16. Let your light shine in such a way that they may see, that men may see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Therefore, the life that we have, the physical life we have and the spiritual life we have ought to be in conformity, consistent with the nature of God, the word of God, that it may praise God. And how will we be enabled? Let your ordinances help me. He returns to this thought that he has repeated many times in this psalm, even in verse 169. Give me understanding according to your word. Let your ordinances help me. When will we quit listening to the world, the flesh, and the devil? When will we quit consulting other people? When will we con uh, quit consulting those that do not have a desire to conform everything in their thoughts, everything on their lips, everything in their life, all of their values and morals in conformity to the Word of God, when will we quit all of that and say, let your ordinances help me and be completely convinced whatever I need is here in the Bible. Whatever I need is here in this Word of God and I don't want anything more and I don't want anything less. Solomon Solomon in Ecclesiastes 12, he warned us about this very thing. He warned us and taught us to do this very thing, to seek the assistance of God from the Word of God, not elsewhere. Ecclesiastes 12, verse 9. In addition to being a wise man, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, and he pondered, searched out, and arranged many proverbs. The preacher sought to find delightful words and to write words of truth correctly. But words of wise men are like goads, and masters of these collections are like well-driven nails. They are given by one shepherd. To this point, he's talking about the Word of God. The Word of God and those who write the Word of God, the prophets and the apostles eventually. But verse 12, But beyond this, my son, be warned. The writing of many books is endless, and excessive devotion to books is wearying to the body. Which books is he speaking of here in verse 12? He's not speaking of the books of the Bible. He's speaking of the books of men. And those books are voluminous. It's unending. It's massive. You can never exhaust all the books that men write. And in fact, most of those books, 99% of the books that men write, contradict the Bible contradict the Bible. And he says, 
Be warned. Beyond the Bible, be warned. The writing of many books is endless. We know that to be the case. And excessive devotion to the books to books is wearying to the body. Yes, it does impact the body when we are excessively devoted to books outside of the Bible. David says, let your ordinances, your words, your laws help me. Not the words of men, but the words of God. Then, finally, in verse 176, David, though he has said many godly things, and he desires many godly things, and he is a godly man, he also knows of his weakness. He also knows of his infirmity. He knows that he has a spiritual malady called sin that needs help. 176. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. David acknowledges that in his life, he goes astray like a lost sheep. He does go astray. He doesn't go astray like a goat, but like a lost sheep. A lost sheep. And in the Bible, there is a difference between being a sheep and a goat. Matthew 25. And like a lost sheep, he goes astray here or there. He doesn't stay with the pack. He doesn't assemble as is the habit of some. He goes astray like a lost sheep. This is sin. He's talking about and acknowledging his own sin, his own transgressions from the law of God. This reminds us of the fact that in the Bible, the Bible speaks of the believer from his conversion to his coffin, from conversion to coffin, from his spiritual life until he reaches eternal life to the full, that he has a period of growth. He has a period of sanctification known as progressive sanctification. He progresses, he increases day by day, little by little, and sometimes by leaps and bounds over sin from his conversion until he meets the Lord face to face. And therefore, none of us should be able to say that we are completely freed from sin. None of us should be able to say and if we do say it would be a sin because we transgress the law of God, that there is no sin in my life. I do not sin anymore. Yes, I, I do make some choices that could be better one day than the next, but actually I do not sin. Some branches or some segments of Christianity actually teach that you can have sinless perfection right now as a believer, even before being with Christ in heaven. That is not true. That is false, and it's deceptive. They deceive themselves, and they deceive other people when they teach that. 1 John 1, 8 to 10. 1 John 1, 8 to 10 addresses this sin. If we say that we have no sin, that's present tense, we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His word is not in us. Another deviation, another transgression, sinful transgression, deviation 
from this truth of progressive sanctification is known as licentiousness or antinomianism or being against laws, being against obedience. This is known also as cheap grace. The proponents don't call it cheap grace. The proponents call it Christian freedom, Christian liberty. They say, we're not under law, but we're under grace, taking Romans 6, 14 and 15 out of context. They want to say, I'm a Christian. After all, I was baptized. I'm a member. I went to the front. I prayed a prayer, so on. I did this or that. And therefore, I'm a Christian, and the way I live from that point until the day I die doesn't matter. I'm going to heaven. There needs to be no obedience. And in fact, if you say a word of obedience, you are accused of being a legalist. No, that's not the case. That's not true. Biblically speaking, Romans chapter 6 addresses that subject comprehensively. Psalm 119 addresses that subject comprehensively. The Bible addresses that subject comprehensively that none of us can say we did something earlier in life to become a Christian and now we can live however we please. No. In fact, Jude tells us, Jude tells us about this very issue. He says what people are who teach this doctrine. He says in Jude verse 4, For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. The people who sneak into churches are those who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness. He means lawlessness. He's talking about cheap grace. He's talking about people who say, yes, they are believers, but they can live however they want, however they please. That cannot be the case. What we need to do is do like David. Acknowledge that we go astray like a lost sheep and then pray. Seek your servant. Seek your servant. Now there we have Two truths of the Bible evidenced in this short prayer. Seek your servant. The two truths of the Bible that are evident in this prayer are what God does and what we do. After all, he said, seek your servant. He prays to overcome. And he acknowledges who he is. He's a servant or slave of God. He is a slave of God. Romans 6 as well says we are slaves to God. He's a slave of God, and therefore, he needs to act in accordance with the will of God. And he prays, seek, so that he does so. He prays for the grace of God, the gracious power of God to work in his life to conform to the will of God. And the twin truths are evidenced in Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. So then... My beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The apostle says that we are to pray, seek your servant. 
That is working out our salvation with fear and trembling. And the fact that we pray to the Lord for the Lord's gracious power to work in us is verse 13. For it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We exert effort. We work out. We exercise in prayer and dependence upon God's gracious power to enable us to live according to the will of God. And we know in verse 176 that David, he does not and never does ultimately give up. He does not forget completely and utterly God and the commandments of God. He says, for I do not forget your commandments. He does not forget God's commandments. This is David's way of saying, yes, I have sinned in this instance, but I have not completely forgotten you. I have not completely rejected you. I'm not walking away. I'm not turning away from the gospel. I'm not falling away from the faith. I believe in you. And because I believe in you and I know you, I know you will enable me. You will help me. You will give me what I need to endure until the end. The one who endures till the end shall be saved. Matthew 24, 13. But who will enable us not to forget, not to continually go astray, but to come back to the path of God? It will be God himself. And Philippians 1, 6 says, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. He who began a good work in you, that work of redemption, he, God, will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. That day of judgment, that day of Christ's return, he will bring it to fruition. And the analogy of a sheep. Jesus in John 10, he says, My sheep, John 10, 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they shall never perish. And no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Yes, God the Father and the Son, they hold us as sheep. They control us and guide us with the rod and the staff of the shepherd. They control us and guide us on the right path. And no one, the devil, ourselves, the world, no one is able to successfully make us forget God, make us turn away from God, make us abandon God, nothing like that. Temporarily, yes. Momentarily, yes. But permanently, no. It will never happen. He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Let's be like David. Let's pray for the grace of God for our own godliness. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.